You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello and welcome to a social justice podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing prisoner rights. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and I'm joined by Jessica Maganek. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, my name is Jessica Maganet, um, and I use she, her pronouns, and I am a staff lawyer at Prisoners Legal Services, where I work on a bunch of different issues, but mostly human rights issues faced by people in prison. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining today. Oh, thanks Uh, for inviting me. Absolutely. I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion. Uh, I don't know a lot about prisoner rights, so some of these episodes I can jump in, some of them I can't. I think we're going to be relying on you to provide us with some information today. And I'm going to start off with just some basic questions to give folks an understanding of what we're talking about when we say prisoner rights. Do prisoners have rights? Um, Well, on paper they do, though unfortunately the prison environment is an environment where people are experiencing constant violations of their rights, but people in prison have the same Um, rights as other people under human rights legislation, under the Constitution. Uh, Obviously, you know, prison is a restriction on liberty. People in prison can't do many things that people on the outside can do, but there are these core protections that are supposed to apply to them. Right. And is the reason that you're saying sort of on paper they have rights, but there's so many restrictions that in a sense maybe they don't, is that because prison here is treated as sort of a punitive thing as opposed to... uh, Like like a rehabilitative environment? Rehabilitative, yeah. uh, Restorative justice, I guess, isn't possibly another word for it. Well, our prison system is certainly punitive. um, But I think, you, you know, the real... From my perspective, the real restriction on rights comes from the fact that it is there's very little scrutiny on what's happening in prisons. So there's a very high potential for abuse within prisons. It's hard even for someone like me who's doing prison justice work all day to always figure out what is happening. Um, And that just creates a real risk for people's rights to be violated um, because a lot of things are happening behind closed doors. And are there some rights that prisoners sacrifice? You know, you can think about things like movement. You can't move around freely. But are there other rights that are taken away that people may not realize? Yeah, well, there, you know, being in prison is an incredibly restrictive experience. I think some folks might think like, oh, well, you're just like going away somewhere for a while. But it really fundamentally changes people's lives. They don't have the ability to see their friends or family the same way. They're taken out of their community. The food they eat is horrible. Um, In prisons for men, you can't pick the clothes you're going to wear. Uh, your schedule is dictated. Really, it is an environment where nearly every aspect of your life is under con- control of someone else. Is it common for prisoners to have their rights violated then? It's incredibly common for, at least from my experience, uh, where I work at Prisoners Legal Services, our phones are ringing off the hook with people experiencing violations of their rights behind prison walls. What sorts of things are you hearing about? Are there specific uh, rights that are more commonly violated than others? 
There are many common issues. I think we see a lot of situations where people have force used against them. So where they experience violence from correctional officers, that's something I work on a lot. Unfortunately, it's often hard to find out what exactly has happened. And in federal prisons, there are certain obligations to film uses of force, but it seems that often the footage goes missing. Getting access to the footage can be extremely challenging. You have to like make an access to information request, which can take months. Sometimes they won't even give it to you at the end. So uh, those are like violations of people's security of the person where they're being injured. Um, There's huge liberty restrictions in prisons that can come from being placed in solitary confinement, which in um, federal prisons is only supposed to happen for like security reasons or if a whole institution is being locked down because of Well, it can be a whole bunch of reasons, but it could include something like a COVID outbreak. But in provincial prisons, you can actually be placed in it's called disciplinary segregation. But for like breaking a rule, that can be a punishment. So huge restrictions on people's liberty and also huge violations of people's equality rights. Like prisons are a fundamentally very discriminatory environment. Uh, There's huge discrimination in prisons against indigenous people, against people with disabilities And you can really see that in statistics about how Indigenous people are treated in prison. In federal prisons, they're not only massively overrepresented, but they're overrepresented in the worst kinds of prison conditions, the most restrictive kinds of prison conditions. So the rights violations really go across the board. Well, and that's awful to hear that that's so prevalent. Is there recourse for prisoners if they're having their rights violated? Like you talked about how it can be really difficult to file an FOI request because it might take a long time. Um, What other barriers, I guess, are in place for people who are trying to seek recourse? You know, most of what I do all day is we watch all these people's rights being violated and try to figure out what to do about it. And it's not always obvious, but there's lots of challenges um, in, you know, seeking justice when you're incarcerated. Um, People may not have money to hire a lawyer. Often people in prison don't have much money. There are some situations where legal aid is provided, but those are limited or where there's like my organization has funding to do human rights work for people in prison, but that funding is limited. We can't help everyone. So money is a barrier. Being able to communicate with the outside world is a huge barrier. Um, We have a phone line, but people can only use the phone at certain times of day. Um, It can be very hard for us to get the documents we need to prepare for a case. Sometimes prisoners lose them. Sometimes they're not given to them in the first place. Sometimes an institution will refuse to send them to us. And sometimes prisons will refuse to tell us like what time a hearing is happening. So just these very basic things make it really challenging to seek justice. Do you find that you're somewhat vilified in the process of trying to seek justice as well? Uh, We spoke with Kyla Lee in one of our episodes, who's a criminal defense lawyer, and she had talked about how a lot of times criminal defense lawyers are vilified. Uh, You know, you're protecting criminals, essentially. Uh, Do you find that the same thing applies when you're trying to advocate for prisoner rights? I think it's unfortunate that um, there's like a popular understanding of like, well, don't they deserve it? I think that it's a hard political issue to organize around the rights of people in prison. Um, I feel like I have very progressive friends. So 
they don't vilify me for the work that I do. Um, and I do think there's a shift in public discourse around the treatment of people in prison, probably because of, you know, work around defund the police and Black Lives Matter. People are starting to think a bit more critically about carceral solutions to social problems. Um, but I think there is still some stigma. You know, we represent people who've done all kinds of things and take the position that they don't deserve to be tortured, which is often what happens to them in Canadian prisons. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It seems like when you look to models, and it's been a little while since I looked into other models, but uh, I remember a documentary coming out on uh, the justice system in Norway, for instance, and how it's much more focused on trying to rehabilitate people and not giving people lifelong sentences where all they're going to do for the rest of their life is sit in a cell. Um, is that something that you'd like to see a shift towards in Canada? Um, I would certainly like to see a shift towards better treatment for people in prison, but I think that can only get us so far. I think prisons are a colonial institution. Prisons are a band-aid solution to social problems. And what we need to be doing is providing people adequate mental health care, I mean, dealing with poverty, dealing with racism. Like that is more important to me than trying to make our prisons nicer. Right. So trying to stop the problem before it. Yeah, there, and it, and the problem is a, is a cultural problem of viewing prisons as a, as a solution. That's my perspective. Mm -hmm. And is there a, a proposal for a system that would work better or sort of just we're in a crappy situation, let's do everything that we can to just make it a little bit better, whatever that looks like? Yeah, well, for the work I do, I represent people in prison and um, I try to, with my coworkers, do what I can to make their lives better. But I think we also need bigger picture thinking about why are, we shouldn't be building more prisons or bring, giving prisons more resources to incarcerate more people. We should be thinking about how to keep people out of prison in the first place. Right. Absolutely. And I, I guess that would also simultaneously deal with the um, disparity that we see when it comes to certain groups being overrepresented in prison. Certainly. How do different security levels uh, or solitary confinement affect prisoners? So I guess those are two different issues. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'll deal with solitary confinement first. Sure. So um, a few years ago, the te uh, top courts in British Columbia and Ontario found that a law authorizing prolonged solitary confinement, so that solitary confinement in excess of 15 days, that that law was unconstitutional. And many people saw that as hearkening the end of solitary confinement in Canada, and it absolutely did not. Um, Prisoners Legal Services has a great report that they put out called Solitary by Another Name that really discusses all of the different ways solitary and prolonged solitary continues to exist in both federal and provincial prisons through things called lockdowns or dry cells or disciplinary segregation. It has all these different names and it's still happening the law that was challenged in that case was called the administrative segregation law, and that law is gone. But the new regime set up, the structured intervention unit regime, is still allowing for prolonged solitary to happen. So people are still being held like we have. I can think of a client I have right now who's been in solitary since January. It's January. Wow. And like, I have no idea when he will get out. It's, it's still a massive problem. And I think... Many people don't realize that. Many people think this battle was already won. And we know that solitary confinement has 
devastating psychological effects on people. Solitary confinement in excess of 15 days is unconstitutional and international law. It's considered to be torture. And yet it continues to happen across the country. So this is a really serious issue. And, you know, it's it's not only horrible for the people who experience it, but it's horrible on a societal level, because when those people are released from prison, they are not in a good state often. They're not often able to function. They need massive amounts of support that they often don't receive. So that's what's happening with solitary confinement. Um, oh, sorry, do you have a... Oh, I was just going to say, uh, provide some context for the yeah. audience too, that we're recording this in December. So when you say that someone has been in uh, solitary confinement since January, that's almost a year that's that we're coming up to. Yeah, I remember... Just, I don't know, like the last time I spoke to him, how devastated he was and feeling like there was really no hope and there wasn't much I could say to give him hope. Right. I mean, you think about people who are stuck indoors for two weeks with COVID, for instance, and how people will talk about that affecting their mental health significantly. Um, multiply that by 25 times. Oh, like that. even it's more. And oh, another form of solitary I didn't mention is the use of observation cells. So. People who are um, at risk of committing suicide can be placed in observation cells, which is a form of solitary confinement where they're also being observed. And it's uh, really horrible for people and often awful that we're treating a mental health crisis with a solution that exacerbates um, people's mental distress. So Canada has a really significant problem with um, prolonged solitary confinement that absolutely needs to be dealt with. Um, in terms of security classifications, so a security classification can really have a significant impact on someone in prison in terms of the kind of environment they're in, the kind of privileges they have, the kind of programming available to them. And particularly for Indigenous people, if they are classified as maximum security, they're not eligible to be transferred out of um, you know, a typical like a CSC prison and into an indigenous run healing lodge. Um, so it really affects outcomes for people and their experience in prison. And we also know that indigenous people are overrepresented at, at maximum security levels. So the, that's not true of the lower and middle uh, security prisons where uh, someone might be able to be transferred to a healing lodge? So if you're in minimum or medium, then you are eligible to be transferred to a healing lodge if you're Indigenous. Um, but if you're classified as maximum security, you're not eligible. Okay. And where does that problem stem from? Like, are uh, Is someone making the decision to put more Indigenous people in maximum security so they don't have that option? Um, I think it's a pretty complicated issue. I think um, there are a variety of factors that go into assessing whether someone is, um, whether security level should be. And uh, there is research showing that these factors are biased and racist against people with mental disabilities and people who are Indigenous. And one of the factors um, is institutional adjustment. So how well you have adjusted to being in a prison. And our organization takes the position that that is irrelevant. What should determine your security level is your risk of escaping or, you know, causing harm, not whether you've adjusted to a horrible institution that no one should be adjusting to. Right. Um, so it's really baked into the process for assessing someone's security um, level. 
That's a word I was actually going to ask you about, or a term I was going to ask you about institutional adjustment, because there's, uh, from what I've read, an institutional adjustment rating. Yes. Can you explain what that rating is? I don't remember the factors offhand, but it's one of the considerations that goes into designating your security level. And but it is unrelated to whether you're likely to hurt someone or escape from the prison. It's about, you know, are you sort of following rules and how well you've adjusted? Um, But I don't remember the specifics very well. Okay. But uh, yeah, essentially coming down to how well do you follow the the rules in a problematic system? Exactly. Okay. So an interesting one for me as a trans person is what happens to trans people in prisons? We sort of hear these horror stories or we hear about lawsuits that have happened where a trans person is put in the wrong prison. They've experienced um, assault or, or whatever it might be as a result of that. So... Are we at a place now where someone who has an F on their ID or even someone who doesn't but who identifies as a woman is placed in a woman's prison and someone who no. identifies as a man is put in a men's no, prison? No, we We're are not, not at that place. Okay. So there has been progress, but unfortunately, trans people in our prisons continue to face really significant discrimination and it can still be very challenging to get in an institution that is aligned with your gender identity. Right now, basically what um, the policy is, is that you uh, p- like a person in prison will be placed in the institution that aligns with their gender identity, except if there are overriding security and safety concerns. And unfortunately, that exception is used to keep a lot of people out of institutions aligned with their gender identity. Like I can think of clients who've been told like, oh, you, you would just be too difficult to manage in an institution for women. Your problems are too complex. But a, a cisgender woman would never be assessed that way. Like, oh, are you, I don't know, calm enough to go into an institution for women? No, that's where they would be placed. So it really puts trans people to this unfair standard And we have lots of clients who are just trapped in an institution that isn't aligned with their gender identity. And it's horrible for them. They experience harassment from correctional officers, from other incarcerated people. And I can think of situations where, you know, legal advocates in my organization have gone back and made the same arguments over and over again, trying to get people in a better place and have just those arguments have fallen on deaf ears. So it's a really, um, I would say like an important area for prisoners' legal services. It's an issue we care about a lot, but unfortunately there's still a lot of work to be done. And are these issues ones that affect trans people regardless of whether they've had their ID changed or not? The issue isn't whether or not you've had your ID changed. So in principle, if you, if a person in prison identifies as a woman, regardless of whether their gender marker has been changed, they should be able to go to an institution designated for women, except if these overriding security and safety concerns come into play, which at least in the eyes of the Correctional Service of Canada, they often seem to come into play in a way that we think is unjustified. I guess my question is, can they come into play if your identification says that you are the gender assigned with that prison, for instance? I actually don't know. I think they still can. 
So I guess if that were the case, theoretically, it could apply to a cis person as well, or, or there's some other determination. Yeah, I've never thought about that issue. I guess the clients I have either haven't had their ID changed or I don't know if they have, but I don't think this would ever apply to a cis person. And mm -hmm. but then it, I, that's a good question. Like, I don't know how CSC would know. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of times if I don't tell people that I'm trans, I just show them my ID. They're going to see that it says I'm a woman and of you know, no questions asked after that. So that yeah. was sort of why I was curious about yeah, how that I would Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other question, which you may not have the answer to either, is now that we have the gender marker X, which people can have on their identification, if someone were to be arrested and charged and incarcerated and they have an X on their ID, which prison do they go to? Yeah, I don't know. And uh, just another caveat I want to give about the previous answer I provided is that specifically for federal prisons, I don't know what the policy is for um, like BC corrections. Okay. So there might be different policies. Yeah, they might. Provincial. They're run quite differently. Okay. Um, with one being better than another or just um, different in their problems? I think there are some pros and cons. <laughs> like provincially, there's independent health care for people in prison. Federally, the health care is all the healthcare staff are employees of the prison, which can create conflicts. Mm. Um, but usually people are in federal prisons longer for more serious offenses. So I think that creates certain unique problems. Okay. So there'd be a more serious crime potentially associated with people in those prisons. Do you know how disabilities would are accommodated within prisons? That is something I can speak to. So I guess in my experience as someone who's doing human rights work in prison, I'm usually like I'm often dealing with people who have disabilities that are not being accommodated. So my perspective is they are not being accommodated very well. Um, but things like ASL interpretation for people in prison who are deaf, that's very limited. Um, video relay service, which is how people in the community who are deaf use the telephone, that's not available in prison. The way it works is um, like I would like dial someone's number if they're using VRS and a an ASL interpreter would pick up and video call the deaf person and sign with the deaf person, but talk to me. Oh, that sounds complicated. It's so cool. It's like you're talking to the person on the phone. It's just not their voice. Huh. Um, but anyways, that's not available in pr in federal prisons. Um, instead, they have something called TTY, which is incredibly archaic and often doesn't work. Um, so I can say that people who are deaf in prison often experience very high levels of isolation due to the lack of accommodation. Um, you know, many, many people in prison have mental disabilities that honestly should be treated in a healthcare setting and not managed in a carceral setting. And unfortunately, prison environment often makes those disabilities worse, exacerbates symptoms and even creates new disabilities. Just the stress of being in prison, the psychological impacts of having force used against you, of being in solitary confinement can really make things worse for people. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in terms of disability accommodation. Right. And I guess um, governments are probably incentivized not to help prisoners in a lot of ways because the rest of the public is saying, we don't want our tax dollars spent that way or Something I, along those lines. I mean, I think that's a real risk that um, 
people in prison are not always the most sympathetic um, about sort of people needing assistance in the eyes of the public. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I guess the people in the public have the liberties to go out and petition their governments. And, um, you know, there's a larger population of people outside prisons and inside prisons. So it's a difficult Yeah, it's a huge disenfranchisement. And I think, you know, it's not to blame people in the public. I think part of the problem is prisons are very hidden. They're hard to get to. Most people, if they aren't incarcerated or don't have someone in their life who's close to them who's been incarcerated, or if they're not a prison lawyer, they would never go to a prison. How would they know? You know, it's really much out of sight, out of mind, behind closed doors. So I think it's very hard to get people to organize around these issues because it's hard to bring them to public attention. Mm -hmm. I think the few times I've seen them talked about have been maybe on social media, someone who's recently come out of prison and says, I just need to share this. These are some problems I've experienced. Um, but there's not a lot of access, I guess, to social media when you're physically in the prison itself. No, right? there's no internet in federal prison. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it can be really hard for people in prison to speak to the media as well. There are all sorts of restrictions. You can't just like call a journalist or a journalist can't just phone you up. Um, so it's hard to get these stories to leave prison doors. Are there some other forms of discrimination that maybe we haven't talked about yet mm. that you wanted to bring up or, or really anything, I suppose, at this point that we haven't talked about that you think is really important for people to know? I mean, I've already spoken a bit to this issue, but I just really want to emphasize how much our country has an issue with mass incarceration of Indigenous people. I think there's sort of an understanding that Black people are overrepresented in American prisons. And isn't that awful that like here in Canada, you know, we value diversity. We're a much better place. Um, and we have a really racist colonial prison system. And I, the, the statistics are just staggering. So Indigenous people make up around 5% of our population, and yet they represent over 30% of people in prison. Wow. The percentage of women in prison who are Indigenous is nearly 50%. So it's really a level of mass incarceration of Indigenous people. It's a continuation of the colonial legacy of residential schools in a different form. Um, and the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Indigenous people aren't only overrepresented in prison, they're overrepresented at higher security levels, they're overrepresented in use of force incidents, they're overrepresented in solitary confinement, they're overrepresented in incidents of self-harm in prison, they're like, more Indigenous people are in prison and they're having just the most restrictive experience in prison. And one statistic I read recently that I found to be so heartbreaking was in the last fiscal year, over 80% of people who committed suicide in federal prisons were Indigenous. Wow. That's so a huge number. It's a huge number. And I just think um, this information needs to be more widely available because uh, it's not an accident that this has happened. We have a racist prison system and we really need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have the hugest platform here, but this is what we're trying to do. Get this kind of information out to the public. And I guess with that in mind, uh, when it comes to the overrepresentation of Indigenous people within the prison system or uh, when it comes to prisoners' rights as a whole, how do you think the general public can go about advocating for positive change? Yeah, I think there are lots of things you can do. Um, 
I think, you know, educating yourself on these issues is really important. There are great uh, reports done by prisoners legal services, not to advertise my own organization, but really amazing research has been done by this organization on all sorts of issues affecting people in prison. Um, they've written great reports that you can go read on their website. So learning more about the issues and then there are all sorts of ways to get involved. I think it's important um, for people to show their elected representatives that they care about these issues because reform of corrections law is often not like the top priority for an elected representative, but these things really matter. And then, you know, financially supporting organizations in the community that are doing work to try to improve the lives of people in prison. I think those are some things people can do. Fantastic. I think those are some great suggestions. Uh, I recently heard about uh, people joining the the BC Civil Liberties Association as well. Is that an organization that you work closely with? Or yeah, oh, we certainly work? work closely with them. And I worked there before coming to Prisoners Legal Services. Okay. So a lot of crossover. Yeah, we um, have collaborated a lot on different prison justice issues over the years. Okay, great. So those are two really good organizations for people to get out and support. It sounds like absolutely. Then. Fantastic. Uh, I know I've asked this already, but is there anything else that you wanted to bring up before we wrap things up? I guess maybe the last thing I'll say is I feel like it's important for people to remember that people in prison are people ultimately. And um, I think it's really easy to other people in prison because they may have done something that we find to be terrible or, you know, we may feel like they're really strangers, but we're all just people at the end of the day. And I just wish more people had the opportunity to interact with people in prison and get to know them. So this sense of otherness would not be so strong in our culture. And also for folks to just really think about is the right response to harm, because maybe harm was done when someone committed some type of criminal offense, but is the right response to that to commit more harm? Like, how, what is that achieving? I really don't believe that prisons make us safer. I don't think they make our society safer. And I think it's a time for real public imagination around different visions of public safety and community building so we can have a real sense of well-being in this province and in this country. Yeah, thank you. I, I think. You know, just to, to really simplify that, two wrongs don't make a right, right? It's um, that concept of why, why would you create more harm as a solution to this problem? Because it's not going to be a solution. Um, I guess that's why you have such high reoffending rates, for instance, because you're not rehabilitating people to go out in the world and, and become uh, someone who contributes in a positive way. You're just making people really angry and and uh, have mental health problems and all sorts of things. And it seems very Absolutely. counterproductive. For sure. <clears throat> I often, my, and from my perspective, putting people in prison often just makes them more likely to commit crime. Um, and sorry, I just had one other thought is I think there can also be this false dichotomy between you either need, you can either have compassion for victims of criminal offenses, or you can have compassion for people in prison, but you can't have compassion for both of them. And I really think that's a false dichotomy. I really think it's possible to extend humanity and care for people who find themselves in both of those situations. Um, my partner is a, a lawyer for um, women who've experienced intimate partner violence. And it's so interesting that even though, you know, sometimes the 
people who they're appearing in court against um, have had involvement with the criminal legal system. When we talk about our work, I never feel like we're working at cross purposes. I n- neither of us view more policing or more prisons as the solution to real serious issues of violence and public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I just encourage people to try to see both perspectives and extend care in both directions. Absolutely. And I guess as awful as it is, a lot of people can't humanize or understand someone else's experience if they haven't gone through it themselves. And I think in a lot of people's minds, they think if I just don't do anything wrong, I never really have to worry about this. And part of it is that that's not necessarily even the case. Because there are people in prisons that have been wrongfully convicted. Of so course. So even if you're thinking, well, I don't care about the people who committed the crimes, and you should, but you know, some people are of the mindset they don't care, you should at least care about the people who didn't commit the crimes that are in there too, right? Like, Because um, you're going to end up, when you brush everyone with that same idea of you have no rights, your rights are taken away once you go into prison, you're taking rights away from people who haven't necessarily even done anything wrong. Definitely. And our, you know, our criminal laws criminalize substance use. They criminalize poverty. They capture all sorts of things that people often have very little control over and they're extremely punitive. So there's a lot that gets captured by our prison system. And I completely agree with you. You can't view every offense through the same lens. Well, Thank you so much for all of your input today. It's been really interesting listening to all of your perspectives, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it was so great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really care about these issues, so having the opportunity to speak about them is such a privilege. Thank you again. This has been a social justice podcast. Our topic today was uh, prisoner rights, and I was joined by Jessica Maganette. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling brought to you by The Flag Shop and inspired by a social justice coloring book.